happening now. We'd like to welcome our viewers from across North America and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room, episode 236 for October the 21st, 2021. My name is Wes Fryer. I'm coming to you from Oklahoma City, where I am the Technology Integration and Innovation Specialist at the Cassidy School. But tomorrow, I will be the sixth grade advisor going on the field trip to Roman Nose State Park which I'm actually really looking forward to. It should be a fun day. And joining me as always is Dr. Jason Neifer, sporting his, um, did you get a haircut actually? No, no. Okay. <laughs> no, sport- in fact, if anything, uh, it's it's funny because whenever I see people I haven't seen for a while in the Zoom call at work, my hair is a- uh, Yeah, right. There we go. Yes, a topic yes. of discussion. So There we go. Well, you're, yeah. wait, you're sporting the- Sporting the flannel as I'm wearing some short sleeves still here. So I, I'm thinking that uh, the northern climbs may be enjoying the fall weather perhaps a bit more than we are in the Midwest. Although yep, it's, it's feeling like fall finally. It's absolutely beautiful here. And I have to say that uh, um, I, I like transitionary seasons. My favorite season, spring, fall, is a somewhat distant second, but still a beautiful season. But the, Missoula, Montana is a beautiful place. Uh, to experience uh, the fall season. And um, I, I, and I'm Jason Eifer. I'm the assistant director and curriculum director of the Montana Digital Academy, which is Montana State Virtual School, located on the beautiful University of Montana campus uh, right here in fall-dominated Missoula, Montana. Um, but I don't think we're here to talk about the weather, are we? Well, we will a little bit, but not for the whole time. <laughs> That's right. We are here to just talk about Apple stuff. No, we're going to talk about a number of things. Uh, what is the Situation Room, Jason? Well, we're a once-week podcast that takes a look at headlines uh, in the techosphere, and we kind of shoot them through the educational prism, hoping to get some clarity and provide some insight for our uh, many siblings uh, throughout the lands that are advocates for ed tech uh, in the world. And you can always find the links that we talk about and probably a lot of links we don't get to at our website, edtechsr.com slash links, which will take you to this epically long Google document we've been doing since day one of the podcast five years ago. Um, you know, so you can see everything we've been talking about. In fact, a couple of weeks ago, um, I did go back to uh, uh, an earlier uh, earlier set of episodes. We do a lot more links than we used to. Um, but more importantly, um, you know, the, the topics have changed quite a bit. And uh, there's some themes, certainly, that, that we've throughout. But, um, you know, tech is obviously moving fast. And certainly the pandemic hasn't helped that. Uh, tonight, we will be talking about uh, Apple news, Google news, uh, security and privacy news, some hardware news, social media news, some AI news. Um, our uh, um, miscellaneous category, and then we'll end tonight on Geeks of the Week. Um, Wes, where do you want to start tonight? Well, we probably better start with that Apple event. So I um, I did watch the, the keynote. Um, as did I. As we've encouraged folks, just check it out from a video standpoint. The theme was music of a lot of it, and the introduction was a very clever video that uh, featured a uh, young person in a garage recording different sounds of Apple hardware um, from different um, eras and then creating a pretty cool, you know, um, remixed song uh, was, was, uh, was cool. I don't think it was quite as amazing as, as the previous event, but um, you know, my overall, and I know we'll detail these with some of the articles you put in uh, glad, glad to see Apple moving forward. Glad to see them, uh, continuing to serve pro users, uh, I think that the the frankly M1 MacBook Air is just 
absolutely a phenomenal device that probably meets the needs of the vast majority of Apple users. But if you want to have that extra power and you need it, you know, because you're especially doing video editing and other high-end kinds of things, then Apple has got the lineup for you. So, Jason, have you already placed a pre-order for anything <laughs> following following the keynote? Well, and I can't remember if we talked about this on show or off show last week, but it was my birthday uh, last Saturday, and um, I had a wonderful weekend with my wife, and uh, she did pick me up an Apple device. Um, I'm now the um, delightful owner of some AirPod Pros. Um, I was very excited to see that they did not update the AirPod Pros on Monday, and she'd actually done a little research there, so she knew she kind of knew what she was buying. And I can't wear the regular AirPods, the little the fits eighty percent of ear pods. They they just hurt in my ears. So and the noise canceling really is a phenomenon of of the pros because they get a tight seal on your ears, but. Um, no, I, I'm not a customer for this at this point, but there are some things here that, that I think are, are, are interesting to talk about. The first one, um, is that, so there's two new laptops, it's a 14 inch and a 16 inch. It's essentially a replacement. The 14 inch is kind of like a 13 inch, but they didn't depreciate the 13 inch model. They just add kind of a pro version. And then the 16 inch is the, they're kind of new size for large pro it used to be the 15 inch MacBook pro actually way back in the day it was the 17 inch MacBook pro um, that it's been a while since they offered that model. And then it, they, they had a 16 inch and smaller bezels. Um, uh, so a larger actual usable screen. There's so many interesting pieces here, and there's a great article from The Verge, J.P. Peter writes on October 18th, the eight biggest announcements from Apple. So um, so there's obviously these new laptops. Um, I will tell you that I did... I, I, I did put a couple uh, of, of laptops in a cart just to like price out what it would look like. The stupid expensive one um, that, you know, I'm, I'm maxing out in the stuff that I would max out on personally. So this would be the M1 Pro um, with, I can't remember if it was the, the Pro chip or the Max chip. I can't remember what the, the specific names are. There's There's two new chips to go along with the M1. Um, and to, to get, to get the laptop with Apple care, which I always recommend getting Apple care for, for this kind of purchase. Um, it does have 64 gigs of Ram, which is probably stupid. It's, 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 it's not needed in, in, in any context of how I would use it. It was a $4,000 purchase and that's a serious laptop, right? And, um, to Wes's, I think really important point, you're not going to find you're not going to find bigger ed tech power users than, than, than me and Wes. We, we use these devices all the time for lots of different purposes. We're not doing any of the, you know, we're not doing CAD on them or we're not, uh, we're not doing heavy development that requires any sort of, of, of power. I think Wes is absolutely right that for the vast majority of even power users, the uh, MacBook Air and the original generation M1 MacBook Pro is probably good enough for almost everything. Um, I would say though, that there was a lot of talk about, you know, kind of bringing pros back into the fold because there has been a perception, uh, uh, I, I think a pretty fair perception actually that Apple has left pro users behind, um, their desktops have, have, have lagged behind, um, there is a, there is a newish, um, uh, Mac pro, the desktop Mac pro, but they, they have not upgraded that with the M1 yet. I am honestly very surprised they didn't re either release a Mac Mini or a Mac Pro 
So a desktop machine that took advantage of the um, M1 chip. And the reason why that's so curious for me is that, you know, it's clear that, that these new chips have gotten around some of the boundaries that seem to exist with the original M1 uh, MacBooks in 2020. Uh, for example, you can get 32 gigs of RAM. You can get 64 gigabytes of RAM. That's a, a pro desktop uh, amount of RAM. And there's a, a, a silly amount of cores in um, uh, uh, in these laptops. And they're going to be released next Monday. So I'm sure we'll get all sorts of interesting benchmarks. But, um, you know, the M1 Pro chip comes with a 10-core 10, a 10 CPU and a 16-core graphics processing unit with an extra 16 of their neural engine cores. The M1 Max uh, 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 kind of medium model is 10 cores, 24 GPU cores, and 16 neural units. And then the, the, the super chip, which is, by the way, my $4,000 laptop had the super chip in it. 32-core GPU, 10-core uh, uh, CPU, and again, 16 of these neural engine cores. And, you know, within, you know, at 64 gigabytes of RAM on there, there just isn't a whole lot you're going to be able to run with that. And that's going to feel snappy, 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 snappy. So, again, cool-looking laptops, but, you know, I, I, a lot of the pros aren't going to use a laptop to edit video. They and, and, yes, you can – it's got a Thunderbolt port on it, so you can – easily dock it and push it on screens. But I do think that, and I haven't read anything suggesting this yet, but for me, I was a little disappointed in the lack of a desktop with these new chips. Having spec'd out a number of servers over the years, especially as tech director, and it's just, it's incredible. I mean, we've talked about Moore's Law and how things have, you know, just gotten to the point of like, do you really need that much, you know, any more speed than you have? And that's true for just about phones, I think, as well as computers. So I don't know. It's I, I'm glad to see Apple not ignoring the power users and the and the pro users. But it is um, it, it's this is certainly not a product line that is going to be sort of the mass market consumer, one, yeah. which is probably why they split it off into two different events, you know? So, but kudos to Apple for, I mean, the power users are such an important part of the Apple user base and have been forever. So I think it's, it's very, very positive, but it's probably not going to have that dramatic an effect on schools. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I think we, we, we've refreshed our iMacs actually the last two years uh, so we've got the, you know, really nice colored, super thin ones, you know, with M1s. And so I think this is this is minimal impact on schools. But as folks look to the professional world and Apple's commitment to, you know, the professional uh, power users that, you know, shows, yeah. a, shows a strong commitment to them. So. And then I want to point out a couple of hardware things to get your reaction, uh, Dr. Fryer, but um, they did. So there's been a lot of rumors in the last year that Apple was going to move back to a more port uh, friendly uh, a MacBook. And um, I, I personally don't mind USB-C world. And in fact, I've, I've gotten used to it now. And, and, and frankly, I, I, I prefer it. And, and I, and I get why a lot of people don't, but so this is what all of these new MacBooks come with. First, um, there's an HDMI port, so you can plug in a, a, a display. And then I guess particularly for for presenter types like like uh, uh, like me and and, and Wes, uh, you know that's easier to do than carrying around a dongle. So um, uh, HDMI port. There's three Thunderbolt ports, an SD card slot. 
a headphone jack, and then probably the one that most people were super interested in was the MagSafe charger, which they depreciated some time ago. And so this is, I think, MagSafe 3, if I remember correctly. One interesting piece about that that I thought was was really fascinating, um, it's not a MagSafe charger, it's a MagSafe cable, which then plugs into a USB-C Apple block. So one end of the charger is the MagSafe power, and then the other end of it is actually a USB-C block, which is what they sell now with their MacBooks and what I received when when I upgraded to a MacBook Pro uh, M1 earlier this year. So um, so there's, it's not like they're moving away from USB-C. They're just kind of looking at it in a different way. You can also use one of the three Thunderbolt ports as a power port, too. So if you want to plug it in with traditional USB-C, then you're, you're, you're able to do that. It's a slower charge than the MagSafe port. Um, but I will say the MagSafe port's great, and um, it's, it's a welcome thing back. Any thoughts about the new ports? I mean, I'd love to have a built-in H- HDMI uh, port. I'd, I'd also love, even though I'm, I've made the transition to USB-C as well, but I got to say, you know, I, I've got a cart of new Mac, Mac Airs in my, uh, my classroom and computer lab. You know, we can't plug in any of our, of our USB-A old, you know, traditional mice, you know, with, without an adapter and I don't have all the adapters and things like that. So anyway, from a school standpoint, this is important, right? We, we held off for quite a while because of adapters and the things that that would, would involve. So fortunately we've made a move to Apple TVs ubiquitously in every classroom. Now I'm so overjoyed. That was, we had zero Apple TVs in classrooms in 2015 when I came to our school. Of course, that was at the dawn of Apple TV days and, and airplane things like that. But anyway, um, school impacts, you know, you've got to, you've got to think about those things. I think it's great to not have to worry about it, uh, an adapter. I'm regularly, you know, leaving and, and sometimes opening my bag going, Oh my gosh, did I, you know, do something weird and take it out? I try to just leave my adapter in there. So anyway, it's been the way of Apple that you just basically have to have to buy a bunch of adapters every time, you know, uh, the technology gets updated, but I am really a fan of USB-C and I'll say this too, our Chromebooks that we have at school are USB-C. And so the 65 watt power chargers that work on the MacBook Air work on the Chromebooks and yep. they work on my iPad Pro actually because I've you know got a USB-C iPad Pro um, yep. it's now a few years old so anyway I love that I love the you know one charger use it on everything um, but yeah it's this isn't going to probably is not going to be impacting me we are going to be I think in the market for some some laptops for uh, for children as well as for ourselves you know in the next uh, eight eight months or so but. Yeah, that that eight hundred dollar MacBook Air is going to probably be the the platform of choice, and I would be yeah. really surprised if many schools, you know, maybe for your communications department, for you know, for the for the power video user that you have, but for the majority of folks, I do not think, you know, even though the the ports are great and and it looks really appealing, it's just going to be overkill for what most people are going to need. Yep, and also to note that. Uh... Uh, and I think it's even a little cheaper with Apple or with uh, education pricing. But like if I were to buy a laptop right now um, and I wanted to go the Apple route, you know, a refurbished uh, MacBook Air, which, you know, comes from Apple at a pretty, pretty substantial discount, um, $150 right now off of the, the price. So you get it for $850 instead of $1,000. Um, that's a great deal. And it's backed by Apple's, you know, all of Apple's promises and warranties. And so if you're looking for... Um, something along those lines right now, I would strongly suggest uh, starting with a refurbished store from Apple. Don't buy refurbished stuff not from Apple. 
uh, this Apple, but uh, definitely consider going that route if you're looking for a great deal. So, and the other thing I'd say, and I was really pleased that our technology department did this when we, you know, bought new Mac Airs with the M processor for every every teacher and staff member, except a very very limited number of um, of Windows users. We were able, as teachers, if we wanted to, to buy our old machines. I didn't opt to oh, do that, but there was a reseller, and I don't have their name, but I could find it if somebody you know wants it or whatever, that we went with. And so all of our laptops were wiped. They all ended up getting you know, shipped to this reseller, but they actually turned around and sent the same machine back. So teachers who had taken care of their device and, and whatever could be rewarded, not by a potluck. Oh, who knows what device you're going to get, but you're going to get your device. Oh. And that was really, really excellent. And it was also affordable. And I don't want to pull the prices out because it was, I mean, it was something around $200. But th these were, you know, it varied. None of them were more than five years old. But one of the things to remember about Apple devices is they last a long time. So, you know, just I've got, I've got the old, you know, iPhone 11 Pro Max now because we've had the 12 and the 13. But the, um, you know, the laptops just hold their value and they work for a really long time. So, we're all, I don't know, probably a, a number of people listening to this are the IT people in their family. And you're, you're having to think about a refresh cycle, not just at school, but also what that looks like, you know, for your family and, and things like that. So I, I think the M, M processors are going to have a long, long shelf life. But um, yep, I think so, the, too. The computers that came out not that long ago are still awfully fast. And so I just say you might talk to your technology department. You may be the technology department, uh, but if not, talk to the technology department about the possibility of purchasing new machines. Uh, we certainly, I think, realize some cost savings by not spreading out our refreshes over five years and sprinkling them, but just kind of doing everybody in, in one big uh, purchase. So our yep. technology manager used to work for the business, uh, run the business uh, division at, at our local Apple store. So anyway, he is savvy about those kinds of things, but good, good to see. And, you know, I bet them, you think there'll be a place at the university of Montana with some of these new uh, uh, power Mac or, you know, power user uh, professional Macs, Jason, or. Um, I mean, I, I think, well, I, I can see some people doing this direction. I will say that, I mean, I, I, I've, I've changed my attitude over time. I really think that if you're on a computer for eight hours a day, which is really my job, it's, it's not quite Wes's job. Um, but I'm, you know, I, I run a distance learning program and 95% of my time is spent staring at the screen. Um, and so, um, and I think that the ideal situation is, especially now that these Macs are so functional, don't go buy a $4,000 Mac. Buy one of these great Mac Minis uh, for your desk and then buy a MacBook Air laptop. You're going to spend less than $2,000, even with Apple Care on that after the educational discount. And then you don't need to try to have the best of both worlds. Because if you're spending a lot of time like I do on a machine, you know, and again, I, and I know this is a bit of kind of a nerd meme, but, you know, I have at home and at work, I have two large monitors that I'm working with and I have a desktop quality keyboard and mouse. This is the standard Apple keyboard, which is, is, is big and beautiful and not very compact. Um, uh, you know, same with, uh, you know, the, um, uh, the, the, the newest, um, um, magic pad, where are they calling these things? Apple magic pad pro. I think so. Like, you know, and if you have cloud storage, which I do, right. The bottom line is, is that you, you know, you, 
you have your desktop when you want to do desktop stuff. And then when you want to go to the coffee shop, you have your laptop and then the files just sync back and forth via the cloud. And I, I think that's the best setup personally. And, you know, and you can oftentimes get a way faster desktop for the same price you can get for a medium fast laptop. And so, um, you know, you're most of the time you're going to be at your desktop machine. That's going to be a faster and better experience. And I know that's not, you know, a lot of people like docking stations and stuff. And, and, and I have some good experience with docks. In fact, my MacBook at work right now is hooked to a docking station because I am not in a position right now to, to purchase, uh, you know, uh, uh, a Mac mini, uh, there. But, you know, the bottom line is, is that I think it's better in that way. So I'm currently on a late 2012 model, uh, iMac, uh, almost 10 years old. Um, I, think I will probably do the same thing that you're talking about. I've enjoyed so much uh, being able to have this video conferencing, Zoom, you yep. know, uh, StreamYard, whatever it is we're using, just having it set up. I will probably be in a quest for a webcam that will, you know, be a replacement for the built-in one. But I just advised a friend who um, had, had called me after the Apple event, actually excited about the new iMacs and desktops. And, and I was just, I was trying to dissuade him from going that route to just think, think laptop and think large monitor. And if you do want to get two devices, the point about the Mac the mini is, is well taken. Peggy uh, echoes your advice or, you know, agrees that that is, uh, is very good advice. So yeah, it's, uh, it, you know, lot, lots of great options, lots of great choices. And the good news is, they're all powerful. There's not any of these devices that are underpowered or sluggish. Um, you know, they're all, they're all pretty amazing. So, yep. It, uh, and then one last piece here, and I noticed that we've lost uh, a lot of time to the Apple time bandit again tonight, but, um, there's some other announcements that, uh, that I think are less interesting, but there, there has been a debate sparked because the two new MacBooks come with the dreaded notch. And so they did upgrade the cameras in uh, the, the laptops to 1080p cams. And, you know, you can generally rely on the fact that, that the Apple camera is going to be a pretty high quality uh, piece of business here, but they have decided in order to keep, you know, that there, there is a, some space required on the top of the screen to make that happen. And rather than take away screen real estate, they would just put a notch on top for you to see through there. And, you know, I, I, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll give the, the very quick opinion. I don't like the notches very much, but I guess I don't, I, I don't like it, but I also don't care about it that much, right? Like if I prefer not to have a notch and I think it does take away some of the usability of the device. Um, but I, I don't care enough to get into this kind of wild anti-notch crowd that, that seems to be forming, uh, uh, in the world. So any, any thoughts about notches, sir? I've got one on, on the iPhone 11, uh, Pro Max now, and it's just, it's a mild issue. I don't think it's that big of a deal. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't like the design, but at the same time, I mean, you do get some screen real estate back, at least in the MacBook, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, one other thing uh, that, I, that I put in there, um, <laughs> Apple, of course, so music was a big theme of this event. Um, and so this is an article from the Mac Observer uh, yesterday trying to understand why the Apple Music Voice Plan exists. Really interesting. Uh, I think it's $5 a month subscription, $4.99. Um, and you have a voice-controlled only subscription to Apple Music. So uh, this article, I think, is probably on the money. It says this is like for um, HomePod-only users, uh, just really focusing on trying to get more Apple Music subscribers um, I liked 
some of the innovation that I was hearing them talk about in terms of playlists and the ways you can say, hey, you know, hey, S, you know, play me such and such and get all these different kinds of suggestions. I am fully in the Spotify fold. Uh, our son is now our lone um, Apple Music subscriber, you know, in our immediate family. So anyway, it's, uh, you know, collecting data and, and having these systems improve. I mean, we, we want a thriving ecosystem outside of Spotify because you don't want there to be just, you know, just one. Um, but anyway, I thought that was kind of interesting. And I wonder how many folks will fit into that category of being a voice only, you know, music subscriber, um, whether they'll release data with that or not, I, I'm not sure. But I certainly still enjoy, and I've mentioned this on the show before, using our smart speakers and, you know, the power that comes from being able to control these things with your voice. And I'm using Google's ecosystem. You know, it's it's usually pretty good. Sometimes there's some frustrations, but not very many. So hopefully Apple's going to continue to get better with Siri as well in terms of what she can do and how she can handle queries and just, you know, better, better AI, which, I mean, of course it's going to get better, but how, how much better. So it's kind of like with Apple maps. I, I got burned with that enough. I was like, I'm never going back, man. Google maps is, you know, what I'm sticking with, but we probably all should remain open to the possibility of changing, you know, at some point. So good to see Apple with this kind of an emphasis. And I'll just say, it's also inspiring to think about music. I've got my keyboard back down here underneath this, this couch. And I've talked to some of my kids at school about bringing it. And anyway, it was, it was an inspiring beginning to the keynote. And, um, you know, it's, it's good to see Apple continuing the historic emphasis that they've had on pro users and, and musical creativity and being able to do that kind of thing. So definitely, definitely at least watch the intro to the, to the keynote. Yeah. I thought it was also extremely well done. I think that, uh, in fact, if anything, I'd be surprised if maybe that even after COVID, they didn't keep doing at least one or two events a year in this way. Yeah. I mean, it is going to be something I think that's going to change forever. You know, uh, when I went to Macworld in 2007, that was one of the last face-to-face Macworlds that Apple came to. I don't know how many, it was just a few years after that, I think that they stopped. And I, I, you know, we're probably still going to have CES. Maybe Jason and I will meet someday at CES or we'll go to, what is it? Google's, uh, Google IO, face to face events. That would be really awesome. But yep, I agree. I think it's just so, they're so effective. They can do such a great job, you know, showing off their products and creating an experience for people, which gets the buzz, gets the PR out there, gets people, you know, gets the, the tech press excited. So, um, Speaking of which, Jason, there, I guess, were two more events, uh, Tuesday and Wednesday, but I don't know if we have any articles about those. We had, what, a, there's a Google event and a Samsung event. Yeah, so. I, I I didn't hear anything about the Samsung event, um, so I'll just need to focus um, on the Google event. And I have to say that I am generally a very big fan of Pixel phones. I think that they're a very smart thing on behalf of Google. And while I will say that I am not really tempted at all to um uh to to go back to that and in part um because i'm i'm very happy on iphone right now um and you know i i also i'm not locked into a contract here i'll be paying off this phone for a little while but with substantial uh, subsidies every month but the reason why i wanted to point out the new uh, google pixel 6 which is their their latest phone um it's got an interesting and weird design they moved away from the kind of square 
uh, breakout box for cameras, at, which is kind of copying what, what the iPhone did a couple years back. Instead, they have this kind of thick bar on the back of the phone that has a flash in it and also has the cameras integrated into it. Uh, I've heard some interesting reviews of that. People that have held it in their hand felt like it was interesting and not as weird as it looks. But the reason why I want to mention this is because Google's phones are powered by its own processor for the first time. And so uh-huh. uh, it's called the Tensor processor, uh, which is in both the 6 and the 6 Pro, uh, uh, which is kind of like the iPhone and iPhone Pro, uh, uh, Pro 2 in that it's a bigger phone a little beefier battery. Um, and they believe that, I mean, before it would have been Qualcomm Snapdragon processors that would, that have dominated uh, Google phones. But Google says that, um, uh, that the, um, the tensor processor should be able to be competitive with the latest Snapdragon processors in terms of CPU performance, but there's a lot of machine learning built into the Tensor processor, and that's the reason why that it, it's so special. So um, it can do things like um, make flo- photos less blurry. It can uh, improve uh, voice recognition. Uh, it can do better uh, real-time captions and translation, which is a feature of, of the Google phones is, is, is automatic translation. Um, and, and transcripts. And that's very interesting to me, especially since, um, it's been a while since we've had a, a Google lat or Google Chrome, uh, uh, a device that was made by Google. But if they decide to go in the direction of, you know, starting to do their own chips, you know, in the same way that Microsoft's hardware, uh, really matched well with software and they're developing, yes, around the broad ecosphere of, um, of, uh, uh, of Windows laptops, but, you know, their stuff works best on their own equipment. I would also assume that, like Apple, Google could, you know, when they're making their own chips, tweak Android in a way that makes it a better phone experience. So I think that's really the only thing that that's uh, kind of mentionable from that that particular piece. Okay, excellent. Um, there was one other uh, Mac OS article, and that was just that Monterey is launching on October 25th. Oh, so yeah. Peggy uh, mentioned or in the chat that uh, the new machines, of course, are going to ship with uh, Monterey. And um, I'm sure once we get to playing with that a little bit, maybe we'll have some other, you know, other feedback and discussion yeah. about that. But yeah. And, and I will say just a warning that, you know, there are a lot of folks that say, don't put your computers into, you know, with the newest version of an OS right away. If it's a production machine. I don't generally follow that in part because if I have a machine that goes down or it stops working, I have alternatives. So it's not like I'm, I would be lacking access. But one thing I will do on Monday is that I'll, I'll upgrade to Monterey uh, right away, but then I'll wipe my machine and start over again, in part because I haven't done that since I picked up my M1 Mac earlier this year, and you know, I installed a lot of cruft on there that you know now I know what I'm using on here, now I know what works, it's less experimental for me, so I'll wipe my machine and start over again. So, yeah. And if we were to this, I don't have any idea if anybody's taken this survey, but the number of people who do that is probably small. Yeah. And the ability to sort of, I don't know, it's sort of like uh, you hear about the, the Native American tribes that were able to pack up and move, you know, move camps re- really quickly. I don't know if that's the right analogy, but being able to take your device, be like, yeah, that's a fine. I'm ready. To, I'm ready to change, you know, cause it, I've worked with a lot of folks over the years that getting a new computer was so stressful because yeah. there was so much stuff and they, 
either weren't comfortable themselves or just overwhelmed at the prospect of being able to, to move that data. So thankfully, cloud storage, things like iCloud, all of it makes it a lot easier to, um, Agreed. to, to upgrade and move. Jason, I think we may have spent half the show talking about Apple stuff. So yeah, uh, I, well, let me do two other quick, uh, quick Google articles then to balance this up. Man, this is turning to the Apple fanboy show. Um, the happening now, two Apple guys talk about Apple stuff for an hour. Um, the, this one's very applicable to schools. Chrome Unboxed reported a really good piece of news on October 15th that support for Chrome apps on Chrome OS has been extended through 2025. And I believe, if my memory serves me correctly, this is for education customers, um, and other, uh, 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 other, other like enterprise style customers. And, um, actually, I'm not seeing that here. I wonder if I read that elsewhere. But the reason why I mention this is because I know how many Chrome, uh, uh, Chromebook users in schools have things like secure browsers that are used with standardized testing that are via Chrome apps. And I, I'm almost certain that that's the reason why that they got a lot of pushback when they decided to appreciate Chrome apps. Um, because that, that's, I think that's really problematic. And, um, and I, I think it's a, um, um, you know, it was a, it actually one of the reasons why a lot of Chromebooks were purchased was to help, uh, uh, make standardized testing a little easier. I'm not defending that. What I'm saying though is that, that it, it makes an awful lot of machines useless if they have no means to create that secure browser environment. So that's really good news. And this is something I actually tested. Uh, Chrome OS 94 is now out. And there's some interesting, like, minor new features. But the one that I found super interesting uh, that is is something I wasn't actually expecting, uh, because I, I hadn't heard about this before, is that um, the, uh, the text-to-speech, uh, or what they call select-to-speak, a feature. It's not the Chrome Vox, which is the, uh, the screen reader. This is a, you select it and then you can press a button on the lower right hand side to have it read out loud. Well, they're rolling out some new voices on it and they sound amazing. And, um, you know, there, there's actually, there's some research on this that, that, uh, even though text to speech is considered to be, for example, an accommodation, uh, that, that might be utilized by a student, for example, that prefers to listen rather than read or has some type of learning disability that, that makes that an easier way to, to access content that we don't respond as well to the kind of computer voices than we do more natural sounding voices. And, um, uh, the, these voices sound really great. And so if you've not, if you've ever experimented with, um, this feature, there's a really great article from, it was Chrome Unboxed on October 15th, um, and uh, the writer there talks about how to turn it on and then how to use it, and it's such, it, it's, it's such a natural, clever strategy, and the fact that the voices are, they, they sound very pleasant to listen to, um, and this is one of the ways I do copy editing, for example, when I'm, when I'm doing an email is I'll sometimes listen to it as opposed to read it to make sure that it sounds the way I want it to sound. It's just a really great strategy. So. Awesome. Well, I went ahead and tossed in one more Google article and this is, uh, a little humorous, but it also is just kind of serious. Um, this is from Chrome Unboxed as well on October 18th. Google assistant is tired of being cursed out. It asks politely to be treated better. <laughs> So it's been a while since we've talked about an article like this, but, you know, with smart speakers and with kids having them, there's different, you know, reports. And I think there's been some studies too about 
you know, kids just really not having empathy and treating, you know, these smart speakers or robots, you know, in, in harsh terms and, and whatever. So apparently, depending upon what you do say to the Google Assistant, it will stick up for itself. Um, one of the things that's important that that article points out is that rather than cuss or say mean things to your smart assistant, um, in the case of Google, you can always just send feedback. And I do that, actually. If I've tried to say something several times and I, I can't get it to work, I'll just say, hey, G, send feedback. And then it says, what do you want to send? And, and you send your feedback. So, no idea if developers are using it or not, but that's at least a more constructive thing than you can do than, you know, just cuss at your smart speaker. But Interesting that they're coding that in there, and um, it's a sign of the times that we need to be thinking about the way, you know, what is that, anthropomorphism, the ways that, you know, we assign human-like traits to uh, non-human things, um, robotics, smart assistants, um, AIs. These are things that are here. It's this is the the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed. My favorite, one of my favorite quotations. Uh, this is an example of it. So, yay, good job, Google Assistant, sticking up for yourself. Will we see Alexa do the same thing? I don't know. You'll you'll have to do some testing, Jason, and let us know later. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> All right, where should we go next? Well, um, this is a quick one, and mostly I was just outraged when I read this one, but this is from Bleeping Computer on October 16th, and um, apparently Canon multifunction printers, so um, the, the, a printer that also scans, right? That's a multifunction printer, also co- does copying. Um, there was a, uh, a model that uh, apparently... Um, Others have noticed this in other models as well, but it was the MG6320, and the it's it's an all-in-one. It's a printer, it's a scanner, it's a copier, and it was out of ink. And a customer um, uh, uh, ran out of ink and noticed that he couldn't get a scanner to work, so he contacted the support board um, uh, and uh, was was uh, started to figure out that the only that once the ink is out of the printer then it won't scan either. Like, the functionality for scanning is just shut off, right? And what's funny about this is that um, uh, uh, the bottom line is is that, I mean, I know a lot of people that either stopped or aren't printing anymore, right? So they don't need um, the, the, the printer component or the cartridges are too expensive or they, they um, uh, bought a, a better printer but still want to use the scanner, well, as it turns out, users are suing Canon because, you know, they're selling the class action lawsuit talks about how these are sold as three in one or four in one devices. But um, the, the reality is, is that once there's no ink or low ink in there, the other two functions are shut off, even though that's not, uh, you know, related to having ink. So. Just a reminder, printers are really sketchy. And in fact, you know, even some office level printers, uh, you know, the, the ink is spendy. That's how a lot of these, uh, uh, printer manufacturers, um, uh, uh, make, you know, pretty wild profits. I mean, uh, uh, inkjet ink is one of those expensive substances on earth in a retail setting. So, um, you know, just a, just a, a word to the wise that, uh, you know, uh, keep an eye on such things. And if your printer runs out of ink and your scanner stops working, it may be that it was purposely uh, 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 monkeyed with by your manufacturer. 
Well, let's go to our only AI article today, and this is a follow-up from last week. So I, ah, it's going to try to, don't you hate it when an ad just automatically plays? Thank you, the next web. Uh, so the headline here is, sorry, former Pentagon expert, but China is nowhere near winning the AI race. Um, and this is by, uh, a, I guess, a Navy veteran named Tristan Green uh, on the next web. Um, and the date is October 15th. Last week, I reported that there was a uh, pretty, you know, headline intense announcement that the former U.S. Air Force head of cyber and um, I guess acquisitions and things like that, too, in, in the Pentagon had announced that the AI war was over and there's no way the United States can win in 15 to 20 years. China is just going to, you know, be be ahead of us. This is fascinating in the same way that during the Trump administration, it was challenging to be able to know whether some of the headlines and articles we were reading about Huawei and Chinese tech and surveillance. Because, by the way, do you remember how concerned the, the administration was about TikTok? And there was this talk about, oh, should the government take, you know, should Microsoft take over TikTok and all this? Nobody's saying anything about that now. So I think that was very political in nature, not, I don't know, just. Who knows? We're going off tech headlines, and that's not, you know, intelligence like you would have from from an intelligence service. But anyway, this article is accusing those that are publicizing that Air Force officials story uh, of of promoting propaganda and saying this is just the kind of thing that the military industrial complex, you know, loves is, you know, let's fear monger and, and, and talk about how China is so bad. And we've just got to, you know, spend more money so that we can, you know, beat China militarily. The subtitle to this article is what's that? I could, couldn't hear you over the sound of my propaganda alarm going off. So, you know, this isn't something I'm bringing up with my, my sixth graders to, to talk about, but I, it, it's hard, man. And who knows when somebody comes out of the intelligence community and they resign and then they're, you know, saying things about why they're upset, it, it certainly does get your attention. Um, this particular author doesn't have any new information. He just, you know, cites that we have universities that are very innovative and that are producing all kinds of smart folks. And we've got, you know, DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, you know, working. Um, and the bottom line is, I just don't know. Um, it does, it does for sure look like you're going to have to be a major nation state or a major, you know, corporation in order to be a part of this AI race. But anyway, maybe it was chicken little and I was passing on, passing on that, that headline and, uh, you know, serving someone else's agenda. It's just, it's just challenging to know. So I thought that was notable for at least mentioning a counterpoint to one of the articles we talked about last week. Yep. Interesting. What about some of these social media articles? You want to sure. The, the one that that stunned me the most on this list was there was a Wall Street Journal article on October nineteenth that talked about how teen girls are developing tics, and there is some suspicion that TikTok may be part to blame here. And the articles it, the article is pretty long, and I'm noticing now that of course I don't have access to it when I want to actually read it. So, um, so it is behind a paywall, but. The and and I read this the other day. So um, the there's been a dramatic uptick uh, in the number of teen girls that are presenting to doctors with ticks, right? Um, largely associated um, 
uh, uh, well, there, there are a number of, of ways that uh, uh, ticks can present itself, but um, uh, someone with, um, and now I'm forgetting the name of the ailment. Um, Movement disorder doctors. Um, let's see. Tourette syndrome. Tourette's, thank you. And and the reason why this article piqued my interest was that I actually follow several uh, people with Tourette's on TikTok because it's a really educational way to get to know, you know, the the uh, intricacies of those things. I also follow a lot of folks with autism. Um, I follow uh, several blind people um, on TikTok. Um, I follow someone who's colorblind. I've learned a lot from her in part because my dad's colorblind and um, uh, uh, I, I mean, he doesn't like to talk about it to be frank. And, um, uh, I've learned a lot from, from, from her, but doctors are noticing an uptick in this. And there's a theory going around that and because there's some, some association and some data to support this, that it's by witnessing a lot of these, um, uh, uh, uh people with ticks on TikTok. Um, that it's, it, it's, it's creating a situation where, where, uh, some girls are developing them, them themselves. And part of the reason why I mentioned this is because, you know, we've talked about this, uh, you know, probably a thousand times on this podcast, but don't diminish the power of exposure to media, right? Like that's, you know, uh, and it's not like 30 years ago where it was a single newspaper, maybe a weekly magazine and, and three channels over the air. There is an extraordinary amount of information available, and I don't want to take away at all from um, from any of the creators that are talking about you know their their lives and how their lives work. In fact, if anything, I think it, it helps add a lot of charm to TikTok. I've you know it, I I can understand why it's a problematic platform, but I've learned so much from people and their lives and experiences on TikTok, and I'm not even talking about the how to stuff that. Part of the reason why I want to get into the uh, barbecue uh, addiction that the Dr. Fryer is into is that there are a lot of great barbecue TikTok uh, uh, accounts. But, um, you know, if you need any indication that there is a, you know, fairly extraordinary impact uh, on social media um, and, and, you know, and it's and obviously it's presenting this way as a, a medical situation. Right. And they did talk about the end of the article that a couple of the people they featured in, in the article uh, were going through intensive counseling and it was helping uh, uh, maybe move away from those ticks. But, you know, don't 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 d- deny the power of um, of of uh, all of this uh, or all of these uh, uh, media and, and exposure to, to things from the outside. Absolutely. Wow. Uh, I just got. I just got a breaking news headline off of Twitter. <laughs> Former President Donald Trump is launching a new social network named Truth Social. It will be part of a new publicly traded company named Trump Media and Technology Group. Wow. We'll probably have to read more about this. It's You can sign up for the initial beta, and this was just announced an hour ago. Good grief. Um, we need more outlets. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I talked to someone the other day who just said, I don't think it's healthy for people to be exposed to so many different sources of information. And it's like, there may be something to that. So perhaps we'll talk more about that one next time, but uh, I want to, I want to share um, really two articles. And then it led, this led to the others. Uh, New York times, October 16th, Instagram struggles with fears of losing its pipeline, young users. So the big headline we talked about last week was, uh, was it 
Haugen, Francis Haugen, uh, who um, testified before Congress talking, you know, as a former Facebook employee um, about, you know, how the company she argues is not able to regulate itself, knows these terrible things and, you know, they, they need to be regulated. Um, in the trove of, I think, thousands and thousands of pages of documents, um, there were a lot of disclosures. And one of them, you know, was this uh, idea that, you know, Facebook has a lot of angst over the future and particularly over young users and whether or not they're going to hook young users. One of the things, and I don't know, I think we've probably mentioned it on the, on the show, but Instagram, Facebook via Instagram was looking at a Instagram for kids app. And at this point that is officially on hold and they're not moving forward with that. Um, but you know, this article, uh, is, is, is pointing out, how important the the young user base is um and you know the 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 uh, adjacent to that is how you know in facebook has allegedly withheld some information about the harmful effects uh, of instagram and social media on young people um particularly um young girls but but others as well in terms of self image and identity and things like that so on the topic of whether or not we should have technology, uh, a tech correction, you know, regulation, uh, Matthew Ingram, one of my absolute favorite tech journalists to follow. He used to be with, um, with, uh, GigaOM. And I have a Twitter list that I call GigaOM vets or whatever. It's like the folks who were still with GigaOM. So I still read GigaOM. It's just, you know, via Twitter. They are all at different places. Uh, but he published in the Columbia Journalism Review on October 13th. A great article entitled, What Would an Effective Social Media Regulator Look Like? And he not only gives a recap of what Haugen was telling the subcommittee, he's pointing out that the criticisms being levied against Facebook and Instagram are really wide ranging. And one of the best points here is that even if you have a regulator, and, and he points out too that Mark Zuckerberg himself and also Facebook's official response to Haugen when, when her you know, criticism and, and accusations came out was to say that they want regulation and they'd like to have government, you know, input. Uh, this article points out that number one, you know, the harmful effects of Instagram and social media on teens and, you know, for identity and those things, that's really not going to be resolved. Even if you have a regulator helping decide, decide, you know, content or change the algorithms or things like that, it's, that's an issue that's beyond just Facebook and Instagram. Um, but it also points out that, um, the, um, the whole, oh, let me see. I lost my train of thought here. Um, well, the, just the other articles and the notable stories that it covers, and this is what I've additionally got linked in here. Um, there's a, uh, a great article from the intercept on October 12th called revealed Facebook secret blacklist of dangerous individuals and organizations. Um, this is such, I mean, what I just said about former president Trump announcing his own, you know, social media company, this whole idea of censorship, you know, the existence of a blacklist of topics and people, some living, some historical that you couldn't, you can't talk about on Facebook. The idea of a company and a small group of people at, at that company, you know, deciding these kinds of things really is problematic. And so that article by Matthew is talking about how, you know, some people are saying this isn't just, we don't just need some regulation for Facebook. 
we need to look at the foundational model. This is a surveillance capitalism model that undergirds all of this. And also that the decision-making processes that some of them are saying need to be decentralized when it comes to the censorship and, and, and that kind of thing. So uh, really, really an excellent article on the issues of the tech correction, which we often discuss. And um, I, I think that the, you know, I don't know, this is just a really important thing to be talking with students about to be, this is a citizenship issue, right? We've talked about in terms of free speech that we have limits, you know, but who gets to decide who speaks will section two thirty, you know, be um, amended. One of the things that the folks quoted in that Matthew Ingram article talk about it is don't let Facebook come and write its own regulation, right? There's a quote from, I think Tom Wheeler, one of the former FTC, um, or, or, or maybe I think these FTC uh, heads saying, you know, this is a tr this is a common playbook practice by, you know, large corporations is, oh, yes, let us help you write that legislation, you know, and they'll end up hollowing it out with their lobbyists rather than actually trying to write it. So you, we probably need folks who are considering a GDPR for the United States, a privacy law uh, regulation to be standing a long distance away from Facebook and from these other companies in, in regulating them and not just sort of, you know, having the, having the lobbyists, uh, you know, jump into the room and, and write all of that with them. Um, but a fantastic article and there's a wide ranging number of issues here. And I really like how that article points out there is no silver bullet. And if, even if regulation would help address some of these issues, which is what it sounded like Haugen's testimony was going to push Congress maybe to, to think about doing. There's a lot of stuff here that's not going to be fixed by regulation. So probably the best article about the tech correction I have encountered in a number of weeks, if not months. Very interesting. I look forward to reading that. All right. We've got about seven minutes left. Um, let's see. Do we want to do security and privacy or miscellaneous? Um, why don't you grab a miscellaneous article or two? Okay, so here's some fun ones. Uh, this is Mashable October 14th. Confused Governor says looking at a web page's HTML is criminal hacking. Evidently, the governor of Missouri is not very familiar with something called view source on your, uh, browser. And the Department of Education in the state of Missouri somehow put the social security numbers of teachers in the source code of some of their web pages, a journalist found this, didn't just announce it, contacted the department privately, allowed them to fix it, and then publicized what had happened. And the governor suggested that he was going to make sure this journalist was prosecuted for, you know, engaging in hacking of their systems by viewing the source code of the web page. So Eric Langhorst, and shout out to Eric, tweeted me after this and saying something to the effect that, anyway, the... This isn't the first mis, you know, misspoken uh, quotation or whatever, for, for first uh, fumble, I think, that the Missouri governor has had when it comes to technology issues. So anyway, that was pretty interesting. Yeah. Uh, any thoughts on that one, Jason? Well, other than, I mean, like, I, yeah, I, let me assure, you know, our, our, our crowd's pretty tech savvy, but j just for your own laugh, let me assure the world that it is not an elite hacks or skill to look at the source code of a page. So that's right. And it is not illegal to do no, um, on a sort of purely like amazing, um, 
standpoint, there's been a there's been a volcano erupting in the in the Canary Islands, which are owned by Spain for over a month. And I'd found another article that I'll mention here in a second um, earlier this week. But I just happened to look at this live stream and I just looked at this right before the show. It's incredible. Uh, this volcano is, you know, very uh, awe inspiring. But the article that I had seen that that pushed me, I actually I went to Google News just to catch an update. Because this Reuters article from October 19th is that drone operator will try to rescue dogs from the Spanish volcano. Some dogs have been stranded on the rooftops of some houses. And uh, so this article said they're going to try to rescue them. They're delivering food via drones today to these places that they wouldn't be able to get to otherwise. And I wasn't able to find out if they have successfully rescued any of these dogs. But Anyway, we talk about different technologies, drone technologies, and the legislation surrounding those and the, the capabilities, just like pretty much every technology out there that can be used for good and used for bad. Um, you know, this is, I think, a pretty note, you know, inspiring use of drones. But, man, that live footage of, of this, you know, fountain erupting out of this volcano is is pretty spectacular. So that's probably going to end up being a wonder link that um, – we talk about in our class next week. Uh, and then the last miscellaneous to kind of finish this off is another one about uh, Russia and space. <clears throat> a couple of weeks ago, I shared that there had been a misfire of a Russian, um, you know, spacecraft that was docked to the ISS that created, I think maybe the space emergency that they've had since the ISS has been in operation. Well, a similar thing happened again, uh, a different Russian spacecraft pushed the space station out of position and sent the astronauts into emergency mode. Apparently this was not as significant as the one, you know, about a month ago, but um, you know, are we going to continue to collaborate with the Russians? You know, are, is that collaboration going to end sooner than, than planned? We don't have our commercial low earth orbit uh, stations to take the place of the ISS yet, but anyway. Just a, another space article. And if if we're not paying attention to what's happening in space, I just I love being able to share that kind of thing with students, because in, in the case of my fifth and sixth graders, they're really not hearing this stuff anywhere else. So there's, you know, exciting announcements from the, the rover on Mars and, and other other kinds of things. This is a bit, you know, of a like, ooh, that's not a good thing to have another space emergency. But, uh, hey, our kids are going to be able to have opportunities to go into space, right? Uh, didn't uh, – um, who's the, the Star Trek uh, captain? I want to say Leonard Nimoy, but he's Spock. Um, James Kirk, anyway, who played James oh, Kirk? Um, how do we not know this guy's name off the top of our head? We're both super <laughs> See, um, guys, we're, we're just getting old. Um, yeah, it was so Captain Kirk. William it's, Shatner. Uh, William Shatner. Shatner. How fast yeah. can I Google that? Anyway, just you know, went up in the in the um, Virgin Galactic uh, spaceship. So that's just in a cool geeky. This is Wes sneaking in more geeks of the week and not the geek of the week is probably what that is. So, do you want to hit a security article or two or push those to next week? What's your, uh, what's your preference? Here. We have some um, time. There's, well, there's a quick one I want to do here. Um, the Verge is a great article um, on uh, October 18th. It says that third-party health apps are 
vulnerable to hacks, a report finds. And it talks about how, you know, there's a lot of apps you can download on your phone. This is true of iOS and Android that access the health data on your phone. And especially if you are an iOS user, there's an awful lot of health data that is part of the, the, the broad architecture of iOS. And as an example, I use a third party sleep app, uh, which is, is provides me a lot of interesting data and has allowed me to monitor my sleep over time. But, uh, the, they're, they're quoting a, a, a report that says that, um, uh, a lot of these, uh, uh, apps aren't very secure. Um, and in fact, um, uh, pretty are, freak, are frequently hacked and probably don't have the same security and privacy, either infrastructure or policies that something like Apple Health has, which is the source of the data. But of course, if you're downloading the app and giving a permission to access that data, you're essentially saying that it can access that uh, uh, data unfettered from your phone. And so it's just a reminder that it's really cool that all these apps talk to each other and the data trades back and forth and how amazing that is. But the bottom line is, is every time you add a new tool to that, that's not, or that's, that's a new tool that you're logging into a new system that you're giving permissions to a new app that always adds an element of risk to that. And, you know, health data itself is, you know, intensely private. It's not that high of value of data from the standpoint of, you know, um, obviously, you know, uh, if you look at my health data, I talk pretty publicly about the fact that I'm a kidney transplant recipient. Um, and that I use a lot of the wonderful tools available to me to help manage my health. But the bottom line is, is I wouldn't want my health data released or publicly available or used to discriminate uh, against me or used to blackmail me. And the bottom line is, is that you want to be very sensitive to that. And it's just another reminder that, again, it's easy to download these apps and it's easy to give it access to your data. But you want to be very thoughtful before you do that. Absolutely. Well... Jason, I think it may be time for the Geek of the Week because we have just gone a little over the top of the hour. So what do you have for sure. us this week? I have a quick one I want to share. Sortmylist.com. Um, one of the things that I, I learned about being on a Chromebook is that if you can access a lot of tools, in fact, on every uh, browser bookmark bar that I have for all of my accounts, I have a, a the leftmost folder is called App, which is a collection of you know ten to fifteen different web pages that I use pretty frequently that provide kind of a unitasker tool. In this case, you can copy and paste plain text in, and you can sort lists, you can take out duplicates, um, and I use it all the time. Interesting tool, sortmylist.com. That's very cool. Uh, I'm going to overshare, so I'll try to go quick. Uh, best podcast I listened to in the last week is from the Wonderland podcast. It's from August of 2016 by one of my favorite authors, um, and it is called uh, Babbage and the Dancer, or Can You Fall in Love with a Robot? So um, this is by Stephen B. Johnson, and I'm, I'm re-listening to uh, – one of his books. And so this is this, the Babbage, as you may know, is a father of computing uh, created, uh, you know, theoretically the first computer um, ever, and then, um, and then actually made it. And so this is just the, the way in which he was inspired by a mechanized <laughs> dancing. Um, oh, I don't even know what to, what to call it. Like, like kind of like music box, but anyway, it's lovely. And I just, I absolutely love Johnson and his work. I'll probably talk a little bit more about that in the future. Um, on a very geeky tool note, there is a tool I've been trying for a while called, mm-hmm, and it is, um, a tool that is a, a screencasting and video 
um, recording tool that is that is powerful. They have a new tool called so their MMHMM is the is the name of their their app. They have a new video conferencing tool that's in beta called OO. So it's O O O three O's dot M H M M dot app. And anyway, it's just, it's kind of whimsical. So I know Jason does a lot of, you know, distance learning and video conferencing and working with teachers. It, it might be an interesting platform to play with, uh, because it's certainly a lot more whimsical and fun, let's say, than just your typical, you know, Zoom call or Google Meet. Um, and then the last thing is I just found this tonight. The New York Times is, uh, has a, a private uh, beta invitation for a new audio app for journalism and storytelling. And I just signed up for it. Um, they actually purchased an app that I think I mentioned on the show last week. Um, it's an app that I'm subscribing to called Autumn, A-U-D-M. The New York Times has, has bought it. But I've been listening to some long-form articles. That there's no way I would be having time to read them. Um, but I'm listening to them. And it's really high quality and it's fantastic. And it also speaks to this idea of how powerful audio is and the idea that we can be consuming things, not just by, you know, reading the written word, but by listening and being on the go and, and multitasking and things like that. So anyway, I signed up for that beta and I know that Peggy might be interested in that and maybe Jason would be as well. Um, very cool. If you're not aware, the New York Times really has defined some cutting edge you know, media presentations and some of the articles they've done. Um, I mean, National Geographic, other, other folks do as well, but this looks exciting and the beta is free. So you don't even have to subscribe to the times to participate. Dr. Neifer, where can folks find you when you are not illuminating us here on the EdTech Situation Room? The best place to find me is on Twitter, Tech Savvy Teach. All right. And I am at westfryer.com. You can click the contact link and find lots of different links to follow me. And I'm W Fryer on Twitter. So we want to thank everybody for tuning in. We went just a little bit beyond. Normally we're about like two or three minutes beyond. So just five minutes. It's not so much, but you can always check out the audio versions of our shows as well as all the show notes and a compressed video version on edtechsr.com. Whereas Jason said at the top of the hour, you can access our links and show notes, which are on our Google Doc. We encourage you to follow us on Twitter. Uh, check us out on Facebook. And please let us know if you're listening to the show. Give us some feedback. Um, and we would always encourage you to join Peggy Johnson, our number one fan. Peggy Johnson. Peggy George. Um, Peggy Johnson was my chair of my dissertation committee. So. <laughs> Peggy George, who is uh, frequently here and here again tonight to uh, be live and in our chat room, helping share ideas and give us questions, etc. So until next time, we encourage you to stay savvy, stay safe, and don't forget to subscribe to the EdTech Situation Room. See you all next week. Good night.